take your copy of God's Word with me again this morning. Open it uh, once more to the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, and today we'll uh, be looking at verses uh, 13 through 20, Hebrews 6 verses 13 through 20. We look there at Jesus, the promised anchor of our hope. While you make your way there to Hebrews 6, uh, I'd like for you to think for a moment, uh, not about the biggest promise that you have ever made to somebody, but the biggest promise that someone has ever made to you. What's the biggest promise, the, the greatest, the most significant oath that anyone has ever made to you? Maybe it's uh, marriage vows for those of you who are married. Uh, maybe for those of you who are uh, uh, teenagers, uh, maybe uh, your parents have promised you a car to drive to school. Maybe that's the biggest thing you've ever been promised. Perhaps you were promised to be adopted as a son or a daughter into a family that you were not born into. These are big promises. We could go on and on and consider many, many more, but these are significant promises to make to somebody. Think about that promise that someone made to you. Uh, for instance, your marriage vows. There on your wedding day, standing at the altar before the minister and the congregation, making promises to each other before God, husbands, as your uh, bride-to-be, standing there in front of you, made, uh, made a promise to love and to cherish you in sickness and in health and wealth and in poverty till death do you part, did you ask her for collateral on that promise? Did you ask her to put, to put down a, a sum of money in order to make sure that she would be good, uh, make good on that promise? So that, so that in the event that she would break her promise, you would at least have some cash in your pocket one day? I doubt it. I doubt that you asked for a collateral on your wedding day. I doubt that if you were promised to be adopted into a family by a, a mother and a father that you were not born to, that you asked for collateral for that promise, because these kinds of promises can't really be insured by collateral. There's no amount of money. There's no possession that can make up for what is lost if that promise is broken, right? The only collateral that really makes sense in a situation like this is the person's reputation who is making that promise to you. When a person makes a promise that big, wedding vows especially, what we are putting on the line in that relationship is everything that we are to that other person. We're putting our whole life. We're putting our whole reputation. We're putting everything that the other person thinks of us, and not just them, but everybody else in the room that is witnessing that event. We're putting our reputation on the line in front of all of those people and before God to say, if I break this promise, everything that I am is, is a lie. Everything that I am is broken, is lost. Some promises, friends, are so big and so wonderful that they can only be guaranteed by the promise maker's own life. We're going to see this displayed in significant spiritual terms in Hebrews chapter 6, 13 through 20 this morning, as the author reminds us that Jesus is the hope of every Christian, because in Him, the promise of God to provide redemption and reconciliation to Himself, in Jesus, that promise of God is fulfilled. Jesus Himself made certain the promise by becoming the great high priest, as we've seen over the last several weeks in Hebrews, the great high priest who entered into the heavenly holy of holies by his own sacrifice and there sat down at the right hand of the Father in glory. Jesus has secured the promise of God for us. The main idea that I'd like for us to uh, consider and to apply to our hearts today is this, that Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hope that God swore by himself that he would give to his people. He is the promise that God made an oath to fulfill. Let's read God's word together. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able? 
So we honor God by reading Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. Last time we were here, uh, we looked at uh, Hebrews 6, um, uh, well, 5, 11 through 6, 12. And uh, I'd like to read just the last couple of verses, uh, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, as we come into 13 to see the connection here. The apostle writes to the Hebrews, he says, We desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's a key word. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus is the hope that God swore by himself that he would give to his people. This is what the author wants us to understand this morning. And he shows us this through the course of these verses. He reminds the Hebrews that, that, and encourages them, exhorts them in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, to be those who persevere in faith, imitating those who, through faith and patience, inherited the promises. Well, what promises is he, talk, is he talking about? First, we see him recall this in verses 13 through 15, where he reminds the Hebrews of the promise that God made to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. Here, the history of the Hebrews goes all the way back to uh, some uh, 4,000 years or so uh, before Jesus was ever born in the person of Abraham. This takes us back to Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abram, a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, to uh, go to a land that was not his, to leave his family and all that he knew and go to the place that God would show him. Reminds us of Genesis chapter 15 where there God reaffirmed his promise with Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham. You remember what that covenant looked like? God instructed Abraham to take a, a, a cow, a heifer, two goats, and two birds, to take the larger animals, to slaughter them, to cut them in half, to lay the halves of the animals on either side of a trench. The two birds are too small to cut in half, so that's why there's two, one on either side. And there, as the, the blood of those sacrificed animals would fill a trench that ran between them, signifying a covenant that was about to be made, a promise-based commitment that was about to be made, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And, and there in his sleep, he saw a vision of God appear as a, a, a burning oven and a flaming torch. The presence of the purifying, the purifying presence of God and fire passed between the pieces of the animals. So as to say, may this much and more be done to me if I fail my promise to you, Abraham, to make you great, to make you a blessing, to cause the nations of the world to be blessed by you, to have descendants that outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. 
The promise to Abraham continued, not just from Genesis 12 and 15, but even in Genesis chapter 22, when then at about 100 years old or so, or over 100 years old, uh, Abraham has had his son Isaac, who is maybe about 12 years old at the time, and God calls Abraham as a test of his faith to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And so Abraham takes his son Isaac, binds him up on the top of Mount Moriah, and is about to kill him as a sacrifice to God when God stops him the help of an angel, shows him a ram nearby to be the substitute for Isaac's sacrifice and reaffirms his promise to Abraham there in Genesis 22, 17, which our author cites here in verse 14 saying, surely Abraham, I will bless you and multiply you. That promise literally goes like this. For certain, says God to Abraham, for certain, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. God's promise to Abraham is made. God does not swear by anything else in all of creation, but he swears by himself. The promise that God makes to Abraham and to his offspring is is a promise that is made on God's own reputation. And it is a promise that, that is about more than just numerous descendants. It is specifically a promise for a descendant, a descendant who will bring that blessing, that hope to the nations of the world. The Apostle Paul shows us that this is true from Galatians 3, verse 16, when he says to the Galatians, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, Paul says, who is Christ? God made a promise to Abraham, a promise to make him great, to make him a blessing, to make him a father of many nations, and that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And how is it that all of the nations of the world are blessed through Abraham? Well, most perfectly through Christ, who offers salvation, who offers forgiveness, who offers hope of reconciliation to God as he gives his sinless life as a sacrifice on the cross for us. The author of Hebrews will later in Hebrews 11 refer to Abraham having looked forward to the promise, even though he didn't see it perfectly clearly with his own eyes. He knew that God was up to something grand. God makes a promise to Abraham, says the author of Hebrews, but also God made an oath to his son, verses 16 through 18. We read, therefore, people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God made a promise to Abraham, and God made an oath to his son. Now, Jews took very seriously oaths and the practice of taking oaths. Anytime there were two parties at odds, we can read about this in Exodus. Anytime there are two people who are arguing, maybe one, one person accusing another of having stolen something from him, and yet the person who is accused denies every accusation. Well, to settle this dispute, the two are to go in public before the whole assembly of the people, and each are to swear by God that they are telling the truth. Now, it's relatively easy to swear by anything and be lying so as to avoid punishment or consequences. But remember, the Jews are a people of faith, people of deep faith. In fact, they are those that God has 
called to himself to be his priestly people in the world, to communicate his, his glory and his character to the world. So for a Jew to swear by God was not a, 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 a superfluous or a flippant thing to be done. I take that very seriously. To swear by God is to, if you are lying, incur upon yourself all of the wrath of God whom you have sworn by, because now you're calling his reputation into play. Jews took their oaths very seriously. But the author of Hebrews says, when God wanted to confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would fulfill his purpose, what did he do? He made an oath. He did the most serious thing that he could do. And he didn't make this oath by anything else in creation, but he made this oath by himself. He swore by himself to fulfill his purpose. What is God's purpose? Well, his purpose goes all the way back to Genesis 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, after our first parents became sinners by rebelling against God's only command. They ate that forbidden fruit. They, they broke relationship with God, and subsequently all of creation was broken. But there, as God is delivering the consequences for their sin, he speaks to that serpent, that, uh, that, that, that animal embodied by Satan who tempted Adam and Eve to eat. And he says to the serpent that one day, the seed of the woman would crush his head. And even though his seed would bruise the heel of, of the woman's, there's a promise of redemption. There's a promise of restoration, a promise of vindication of God's holy character among his people, a promise to reconcile his people to himself. God's purpose goes all the way back to the moments after the very first sin, his purpose to redeem sinful humanity through the work, the priestly work of Jesus, his son, as we've been seeing in Hebrews. That's his purpose. And he promises to fulfill his purpose by making an oath. What is the oath that God makes? Well, here our author is referring back to Psalm 110, specifically Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 has kind of been the context for much of what we've been looking at over the last few weeks, particularly this connection between Jesus and Melchizedek, that, that uh, mysterious Old Testament kingly priestly figure uh, to whom Jesus shares some sort of, uh, or, or, or better, uh, in, a, in a better way, fulfills the, those priestly duties of his. Jesus is a priest after, after the order of Melchizedek. Well, if we go back to Psalm 110, verse 4, we read this. Now, by the way, the context of Psalm 110 is of the Lord, Yahweh, God, speaking to David's Lord. Psalm 110 is a psalm of David, and it begins, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. Well, who is greater than David among all of the people of Israel? Well, none other than, than, than certainly the Son of God. The Lord said to my Lord. And, and God begins making promises to His Holy One, to His Son. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, He says, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. He has made an oath, and it is unchangeable. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. God made a promise to Abraham to give him offspring, and among those offspring is Jesus the Christ, the, the great high priest that makes intercession for sinners. And God made an oath to fulfill his purpose in redemption, an oath to his son that his son would be that priest. God's promise to Abraham and his swearing that the son, the son of God, Jesus the Christ, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, is, is doubly confirmed here. God has made a promise to Abraham and an oath to his son. God is doubling down on his promise to bring redemption. He swears by two unchangeable things. First, a promise that he made to Abraham, that Abraham's seed would outnumber the stars of the sky and through him would all the world be blessed. And second, that God had sworn that the son would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
So both God's covenant, his promise with Abraham, and his oath that he swears by himself to the Son, both of them are irrevocable. Neither of them can, uh, can be undone. And since God cannot lie, because he's only truthful, and because he would never swear to do something that he has no intention to do, they are certain to come to pass. In the surety of God's promise and oath, there is great encouragement for the church to hold fast to the reality, our author here in Hebrews says, to hold fast to the reality that Jesus is that high priest forever, that one who goes between sinful humanity and holy God, interceding for the elect, the mediator of an eternal salvation. Jesus is the hope that God swore by himself that he would give to his people. He promised to Abraham. He made an oath to the Son. And here in verses 19 and 20, we see that God gave also a certain hope to his people. God gives a certain hope to his people. As a great high priest, then Jesus steps behind the heavenly veil, which is the greater reality of the temple veil to present a sacrifice for sins for God. We've already discussed a little bit. We'll see it more in, uh, later in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. That, that holy day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day in which the high priest among the people would make a sacrifice for his own sins, make sacrifice for the sins of the people, and take the blood of that sacrifice into the most holy place of the temple, where there the Ark of the Covenant of God was, that, uh, the, that gold overlaid box that held the tablets of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and a jar of the the manna that was collected in the wilderness period. There above the, what's called the mercy seat, there above the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God would come to rest as the high priest would go in and offer blood for the forgiveness of his own sins and the sins of the people. Between the Holy of Holies and the outer uh, room of the temple was a thick curtain that could not be transgressed, could not be passed through by anyone except the high priest, and that only one day a year, only on Yom Kippur, only on the Day of Atonement. Here we are told that Jesus goes through the veil, that Jesus steps behind the curtain, and not the curtain in a physical earthly temple where God's presence is only manifest for a time, but he steps behind the veil that that. that that, that stands between God in his own holy presence in heaven and the rest of creation. Jesus steps into the very presence of God because Christ has done this on behalf of sinners, because he has made a sacrifice that no priest can replicate, and because he goes into the place where no other priest can go. There is then for those who are in Christ, who have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, a hope that exists, that rests in the realities of the other side of the veil. There is hope in the very person and presence of God for us. For we who are in Christ are not far from God, but anchored to Him in His, His very presence. The Hebrews that the author of Hebrews is writing to may have struggled with the certainty that Jesus was a great high priest. They may have been tempted to go back to that temple worship ritual going back to offering sacrifices for sins in the temple. For them, this undeniable promise of God that Jesus is a high priest forever serves, as our author says, as an anchor for their soul, as a thing to keep them from drifting, to remain steadfast in their hope in Jesus. Jesus, the great high priest who goes into the heavenly place where God is, where our hope follows after him, the forerunner of our faith, he is the mooring point, the docking point 
for their life, for their spiritual hope. And so he is for us as well. Jesus is the hope that God swore by himself to give to his people. He made a promise to Abraham. He made an oath to his son. He gives a certain promise to his people. And so here's my exhortation for us today in light of this. First, friend, claim the result of God's promise. Claim the result of God's promise. God has promised, beginning with Abraham, and has carried that promise through and fulfilled it in Jesus to bless you in Christ. Not to bless you with stuff, not to bless you with things that you want, but to bless you with what you most desperately need, which is to know God, to to enter into the, the purpose for which God has given you, to know, to love, to worship Him, to walk with Him as Adam and Eve did in the garden before their sin. God's promise to you is restoration. Claim that promise. Claim it in Christ. Place your faith in Jesus, the great high priest who has gone into the heavenly places. Claim the result of God's promise. Second, Christian, hold God to his oath. Hold God to his oath. What do I mean by that? God has made a promise to his son to be a priest forever. One who goes between us and God in a never failing way. Because Jesus is a priest forever, he always lives to make intercession for us. He always lives to keep us reconciled in right relationship with God. This is the truth of God's oath, that Christ our priest will never fail us. Because he himself is sinless, unlike those sin-stained priests of old, he never has to make sacrifices for himself. He is never not reconciled to God. He is never not in perfect relationship with God the Father. And because he is always in perfect relationship with, the God, with God the Father, we who are united to Jesus by faith in him are always right with God. Jesus will never fail you. So rest your life, rest your hope in God's good oath that he has sworn by himself. Third and finally, Claim the result of God's promise. Hold God to his oath. And third, run to your forerunner. Verses 19 and 20 say, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that endures, or excuse me, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That word forerunner, means one who goes ahead in order to show the way. One who blazes a trail for others to follow. Lewis and Clark, so many centuries ago, made a journey across the continental United States to find a pathway to the West Coast. They were met with many trials and difficulties, challenges along the way. But as they moved along, they they charted this course, they drew up new maps, they blazed a trail for others to find, which, uh, which ignited the, uh, the, the American expansion into the West in uh, previously un, uh, un, un, uncharted sense. Jesus, all the more, is a forerunner for us, not just to uh, another coast, but the very presence of God. When Jesus enters behind the veil, when Jesus goes into the holy place, the the heavenly holy of holies, and sits down at the right hand of God, he does so for us to follow. He he makes a path for us to go where previously we could not gone. And there he sits down. He rests as a king at the right hand of God for us to place our faith in. A king who never fails, a king who never changes. Run to your forerunner, friend. 
If you do not know Jesus, if you struggle to feel in any sense that you are close to God, if you, if you struggle to know that your sins can truly be forgiven, run to Jesus, who's already blazed the trail for you. Follow in his footsteps. Trust him as Savior. Believe in his death for your sins and resurrection from the dead. Put your hope in him who never fails. There in Jesus, you can weigh anchor into the rock of God's presence. As you run to your forerunner, Jesus, the hope that God promised by himself, swore by himself that he would give to his people. Dear friends, God always fulfills his promises. And his promises he swears by himself. So when he swore to bless the nations of the world by rescuing them from their sin and and promising to make his spirit to live in the hearts of those who trust him, in order to do this, he gave his own son, God in flesh, Jesus the Messiah, not only to carry out the covenant ceremony, but to give his own life, to shed his own blood as the blood to seal the new covenant. By God's own promise to take the penalty for our sins, we have the offer of salvation laying before us. Those who have publicly trusted Jesus by faith have received the promise. We've claimed that promise. We are living in light of God's oath. We have run to our forerunner. God has made good on his oath to make his spirit to dwell in us. Jesus has done this for us. We have not attained this promise for ourselves. We have not attained this hope by our own merit. Christ alone has done it in our place. And so we rejoice in the finished promises of God. And we remind ourselves of the sure and steady anchor of our hope and proclaim to the world the coming return of Jesus as we, his people, take the Lord's Supper together. 